instructions does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about brotherly love, which do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have not taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily lives will win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Our second reading is from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 13 to 23, which can be found further down on page 1217. So that's 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 23. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hopes fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you to be holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you called on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you will have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. This is the word of the Father. Thank you, Ali, very much. Would you um, turn again to 1 Thessalonians 4, please, to that passage? Uh, Let's pray um, as we come to God's word. Father God, we thank you so much today that your word is utterly relevant to our situation. We thank you that through it you show us your will for our lives, and we thank you that your will is good and perfect. And I pray tonight that all of us may hear your voice speaking to us, Lord, and that we may not just hear what you're saying, but we may go and do something about it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today in our study of 1 Thessalonians, we come to another topic, how to please God. The Thessalonians, as we heard over the last few weeks, had Paul with them for only a few weeks after he planted the church there. He had to flee very quickly from them after some serious persecution, which continued after he left. He longed to return to them (coughs) soon, but that had not been possible. In fact, he said Satan blocked him coming back. So he wrote this letter, and indeed the one that follows it, um, to encourage them in their new faith. The letter is indeed full of encouragement. Paul had been thrilled to hear from Timothy how they were standing firm in their faith, so he not only commends them, but continues to teach and exhort them, especially in the matter of pleasing God in everyday living. To put it another way, Paul is here talking about holiness, without which, as the writer to the Hebrews states in chapter 12, verse 14 of that letter, without holiness, no one 
will see the Lord. Holiness matters. It is vital to all of us. But today that word has a rather old-fashioned ring about it. It conjures up, if you're anything like me, images of people in sandals and hair shirts who stand out because, frankly, they're rather weird. That is not the biblical view of holiness. Christians are indeed called to stand out. In the reading from 1 Peter, we heard that Christians are described as strangers in the world. It's because as Christians, having committed our lives to Jesus Christ, we march to a different drummer, Jesus Christ. And as Charles said last week, the moment you do that 180 degree turn to follow Christ, you have a totally different set of priorities and values. Instead of having as your final authority what the world thinks, your final authority, my final authority, is now the Bible, which sets out God's view of life. And holiness can be very, very attractive indeed. When you're in the presence of someone who is holy, it makes you want to be holy too. Just as people were drawn to Jesus when he walked the earth. The word translated finally in chapter 4 verse 1 <clears throat> could also be translated therefore because it connects that first verse to the verse before at the end of chapter 3 which says this, may God strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. The Bible tells us that Jesus will return suddenly at the end of time as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Every human being will have to bow before him, whether they acknowledged him in this life or not. Then we will not want to be found unprepared any more than we would want to find ourselves standing, for example, before the Queen, if we were suddenly brought into her presence with our old painting clothes or gardening clothes or decorating clothes on. You see, the thought of Christ coming again is and should be a great spur to holy living. Paul sets here out here four ways in which we can please God. And I'm sure you will all know, if you don't, you need to know, <clears throat> that this is not to earn salvation, which cannot be um, earned. Our salvation is a gift from God, not of good works, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. But we want to please him because we love him. Just as a husband or wife will want to please their spouse because they love them. So with that in mind, we want to please God because we love him, because we're conscious that Jesus is coming back again soon. What is the first way we can find in this passage? Well, it's in our desire for constant spiritual growth. God will be pleased with us if he can see in our hearts a real desire to grow spiritually. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It's clear from these verses that Paul had already taught them how to please God. Paul placed a high value on teaching or another word for it is doctrine. Look at verse 1. We instructed you. Verse 2, you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Verse 6, we've told you and warned you. 
verse 11, just as we told you. And as we heard last week, Paul had taught them much in the short time he was with them. His discipleship curriculum was clearly very thorough, with teaching about matters such as the return of Christ, the need to understand the work of Satan, and the place of spiritual warfare. All things that I imagine we don't particularly put in in the first two or three weeks of leading someone to Christ. And the word doctrine simply means teaching. Now, occasionally you may hear a preacher say, don't worry about doctrine, it's dull and boring. I would want to say about that, that's more a view of the comment on the preacher who makes it dull and boring, because nothing could be more exciting than to be taught God's will and plan for you and me and for the universe. Or, as a speaker I heard some time ago said, don't worry about doctrine, relationships are what count. Wrong, wrong, wrong. If your doctrine is not right, your relationships will not be godly ones. See, what the Bible has to teach us is never boring. A sound grasp of doctrine is vital if we're going to be able to live as God wants and if we're going to be able to refute those who would try to steer us away from God's ways. So always be suspicious of a preacher who tells you that doctrine is dull. We need to know, and perhaps in these days, more than ever before, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. That's why intentional discipleship is really key. If you don't know about intentional discipleship, ask somebody who's been here for a bit longer uh, than you have. Uh, We're now in our third and final year of intentional discipleship, where we're aiming to go through the major doctrines of scripture and the major Bible books as well. I love the idea that we please God when we aim for spiritual, constant spiritual growth. As verse 3 says, God intends us to be fully sanctified when Christ comes again. And that simply means becoming more and more like Jesus. And you'll see on top of those blue bulletin sheets a quote from the Bishop of Liverpool who said this, True holiness is something of the image of Christ which can be seen and observed by others in our private life and habits and character and doings. Now, there's a challenge for all of us on a Sunday night. As people look at us, at our private life, at our habits and character, do they see something of the image of Christ in us? Because most, you know, most of us, we are probably, we may well be the only Christian that many, many people meet. And what their view of Christ and Christianity will be based on how we are. Somebody once said many years ago, every Christian is a flesh-covered Bible. That's quite a challenge. Paul puts it another way in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says this, We all, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, have you ever come across a Christian who's not growing? who's complacent about where they stand with God, who gives you the impression that they've nothing more to learn. This, I may say, is nothing to do with age. I have known 25-year-olds who are like that. They think they know it all. They've done all the Christian growing they're going to do. And equally, I've known 80-year-olds who are the exact opposite. Nothing could be more exciting and energising than to know 
that God means us to keep on growing spiritually till the day we die. I love that. There's no retirement in God's economy for the Christian. We're supposed to go on and on growing. And people who are doing that are inspiring to be around. They're always telling you about what they've discovered in their Bible reading that morning or about some great Christian book they've read. Now, the summer is coming. It's usually a little bit less hectic, whatever our jobs may be. What books are you going to read? Have a look on that table over there. There's a, there's a list of recommended books, all of them great books to read. Have a look at one of those. What Bible reading are you going to do this summer? Again, perhaps think about reading a great chunk of the Bible at a time. You can read the book of Joshua in 30 minutes, for example. It's speed reading, but it's, it's great to have an um, a overall grasp of a book or series of books. So, we can please God in a desire to constantly grow spiritually. Now, that's a general need to live in such a way as to please God. And Paul now moves on to three specific and very practical areas. Sex, love for other Christians, and work. And as we go through them, note how in all of them, the Christian will stand out from the culture. So, secondly, we're called to please God in our attitude to his precious gift of sex. Look at chapter 4, verse um, 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who don't know God, and that in this matter... No one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him or her. The Lord will punish men and women for all such sins, as we've already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he or she who rejects this instruction does not reject human beings, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit." As we've already noted, Paul begins this section with the stark words, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. And so often when we think of sanctification, we are too abstract and high-minded. In God's eyes, sanctification is involved with the nitty-gritty stuff of everyday life. In this case, it's sex. Christians are called to avoid sexual immorality The Greek word is porneia, from which, of course, we get the word pornography. And this, according to commentator Greg Beale, can refer specifically to any illicit form of sexual intercourse or generally to any immoral form of sexual relationship. And commentators say that that word avoid sexual immorality is too weak. The Greek behind it has the meaning of a clean cut with immorality. Another commentator has said, when things are evil, the Christian attitude is necessarily one of abstention and not moderation. To put it more simply, in other words, God is saying, if you're a guy sleeping with your girlfriend, if you're a girl sleeping with your boyfriend, stop it. Stop it. So the teaching from here and the rest of scripture is clear. We Christians are to stand out from unbelievers as those who keep sexual intercourse for marriage between a man and a woman, not in passionate lust like the heathen who don't know God, verse 5. 
And Paul says in verse 6, don't wrong your brother or sister in this. He means that sexual sin does not just affect two people. In adultery, another party or maybe two parties are involved, as is true with premarital sex, when you enter marriage having had sex with someone else first. And please note verse 8. Look at verse 8. Look what Paul says there. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject human beings, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, many years ago, Charles and I were in a church where there was a couple who were living together. The woman, a professing Christian, realized it was wrong, and she told the man that they had to stop sleeping together. He was furious. That following Sunday, they came to church, and Charles just happened to be preaching on this very passage. He pointed out verse 8 and said, as verse 8 says, this is not just the minister speaking. These words are from God himself. Now, the man in the congregation that Sunday had no answer. Just as an aside, that, of course, is one of the great benefits of what we call expository preaching, where you go through a whole book of the Bible or a whole series. It's a program planned months in advance, which cannot be said to have been manipulated for some immediate pastoral situation. It's all God's timing, and it is remarkable how again and again God comes up with something that is so apt for the situation. Now, some of you sitting here may be saying, well, this is all fine for Paul in his day, but not for us. Tricia, you have no idea what it's like out there. Well, as one commentator explains, the Thessalonian Christians lived in a world where people did not see fornication as a sin, but as part of normal life. How modern that sounds to you and me. Paul was speaking into a society that it seems was just as sexualized as ours is today. Perhaps the difference for us is the all-pervasive nature of that sexualization due to modern technology and media. Immoral sex is so much a part of everyday entertainment, whether we're talking about television, film, or pop videos. Sex is used to sell everything from cars to hair dye to coffee. And the pressures are immense particularly in our young, you really stand out if you've reached the end of your teenage years and not had sex. And the other huge and growing issue is pornography. A married 30-something told me a few years ago that pornography is the biggest issue in her age group, young married couples. And at one of our local schools, a visitor not very long ago told 14-year-old boys that pornography does you no harm at all. Again, that's an absolute lie. Pornography can rot up your sexual relationships for the rest of your life if you're not careful. Now, I know this is an incredibly hard message to bring to the generation that most of you are from, where sex is commonplace, where sex has been debased, where no date is complete without sex at the end of it. It's it's frankly not very far different from being like rabbits. Even for those who say... But it's okay because we're committed to each other. This is so far from God's ways. A couple of years ago, Charles and I were staying in a hotel, a highly respectable hotel in New York. And when we turned on the TV, before we got to the program menu, a voice said something like, you're here on your own. You're far away from home. No one is going to disturb you. 
Why not look at some of our great range of adult movies? Spoil yourself and have some fun. And we, Charles and I, have known businessmen for whom that is a huge temptation. Away from home, on your own in a hotel room. Huge. And of course, with the advent of smartphones, pornography is even more accessible. You no longer need a desktop or a laptop. Now, we mustn't be naive about the terrible dangers of all this, how it can rot us up and our relationships up. If it's an issue for you, there is a great book by Tim Chester. Actually, every book written by Tim Chester is great. It's called Captured by a Better Vision. And there's another great thing called Covenant Eyes. But if it is an issue for you, don't hide it. Don't be ashamed of it. Talk to your home group leader and maybe talk, come and talk to one of the clergy. Or indeed me, if you're a girl. And don't believe the lie that in order to lead a fulfilled life, you must have a sexual relationship. That is not true. John Stott, who himself was single all his life, wrote in his commentary on this passage about, and I quote, the multitudes of Christian singles, both men and women, who could testify that alongside a natural loneliness accompanied sometimes by acute pain, they have found joyful self-fulfillment in the self-giving service of God and other people. Sex is a most precious gift from God. And our society has rotted it up. Don't let yourself be rotted up by that. Think how much suffering in our society would be removed if people got this right. Now, I'm going to tell you a, a, a true story of um, um, something that happened some years ago. It was uh, written by somebody called Chuck Yeager, who was an American test pilot who first broke the sign barrier. And he said this. Uh, there was a new North American jet fighter, the F-86 Sabre. Suddenly, and for no apparent reason, he said, we lost three or four pilots killed while doing low-level rolls. Their planes just went right into the ground. Investigators couldn't work up why? So this great test pilot, Chuck Yeager, himself took a, a sabre up. And one day as he was flying and doing a slow roll, roll over the Sierra Nevada, one of the ailerons locked. It was a scary moment, he said, flying about 150 feet off the ground upside down. But he said, the moment I let off on the G's, I think that's the G-force, pushing up the nose, the aileron unlocked. He climbed to 15,000 feet, where it was safer to try it again, and the same thing happened. So he took it along to a general, and they went to the factory where these planes were being manufactured. They found there uh, that a bolt in the aileron control assembly was installed upside down. And crew uh, chiefs in every Sabre squadron were ordered to inspect the wings for that upside-down bolt, while a team went to the North American factory. The culprit was a long-time worker on the assembly line who thought he knew better. He ignored instructions about inserting that bolt because he knew that bolts like that were supposed to be placed head up, not head down. And Chuck Yeager finishes, nobody told him how many pilots he had killed. See, there was a man who thought he knew better than the maker's instructions, and it caused absolute havoc. 
absolute havoc. And the same is true with God's instructions as to how to live. Using the wonderful gift of sex in the right way, following our maker's instructions, is a vital protection for marriage and all of us. But before I finish this section, what if we have failed? What if you're sitting here tonight and you're saying, Tricia, I see what you're saying, but, but I have failed. I have been a failure in this area. Well, I would want to say that sexual immorality is not the unforgivable sin. Never forget that God's forgiveness is available to any who truly repent, who truly repent and turn their back on all that they know to be wrong. And in communion, in a moment, we're going to be remembering the cost of that forgiveness. It is not cheap. It cost Jesus Christ his life. Now, two points um, as we come to an end. We're called, thirdly, to please God in our love for other Christians. Look at verse 9. Now, about brotherly and sisterly love, we don't need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you to do so more and more. They're already loving other Christians. And Paul says, that's great. Do for it. Do it more and more. And it's so important, this point, that Paul prayed for this, as we saw last week in chapter 3, verse 12. Now, this is not agape love, love for all human beings, but Philadelphia, love especially for our fellow Christians. And note that all of us have been taught by God to love each other. You see, when you become a Christian, you discover a bond and a love for other Christians that you would never have thought possible. One of the, one of the wonderful things about the Christian church is that we find ourselves bumping up against and working closely with all manner of people we might not otherwise have met. Old, young, different temperament, different work, different hobbies, different habits, different... Uh, nationalities it's great and we discover we have that um, in common that love of Jesus which gives us a love for one another it's a key part of Christian living for nothing can be so um, telling for the for the world as a group of people who truly love each other and equally nothing can be more damaging to gospel ministry as a divided church and because it's so key Satan will do all he can to sow seeds of dissension and division. So let's aim to build up that kind of love here at St. Michael's. We do love each other, but let's follow this injunction and do so more and more. And be on the lookout for any negative, critical people. Make sure that you do what God tells us to do in Ephesians 4 verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. We all know what it's like, isn't it, to go and see someone, and they just may say a few words to us, and we leave feeling 10 feet tall, because they've just got just the right word for what we needed at that moment. That's what Paul is talking about here. Let's all try to be people like that, who build each other up, who inspire each other with just a few words. And of course, we're, loved, we're called to love those we don't get on with. Even if they've hurt us, we're called to forgive and forbear. Now, we as a church family have suffered much in the last year. We have lost a number of brothers and sisters in Christ, both old and young, and we all miss them dearly. 
but I have been so proud to be part of a church where in our sadness, we've prayed for one another, we've cooked meals, we've sent notes, and we've generally supported one another. We have shown truly brotherly and sisterly love, and that can only be incredibly pleasing to God. Finally, we're to please him in our concern to honour him at work. Look at verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. It seems that some of the Thessalonians were not earning a living because they thought Jesus would be coming back soon. So they were relying on others to provide their material needs. Paul scotches that idea immediately. They were to lead a quiet life, to mind their own business, and be prepared to work with their hands as Paul was. See, manual labor was treated with scorn by the Greeks, who saw it as degrading and fit only for slaves. Paul, as we know, worked as a tent maker. Why were they to work? To win the respect of outsiders in their everyday life and not to be dependent on anyone. Work can, of course, cover a whole variety of tasks. The young mother at home with her baby is working just as much as the woman in the office. The retired senior who does shopping for his housebound neighbour is working too. The key thing is that whatever our work, we do it in such a way that unbelievers respect us and so we don't bring discredit on our Lord. Now, just to take one area, which may or may not, you may or may not be aware of, I have to say that to pay workers or builders, for example, in cash is the very opposite of honouring our Lord. In May 2014, the Financial Times reported that in the tax year 2011 and 12, some £40 billion of VAT, income tax, national insurance and corporation tax was lost to the UK exchequer. This is known by some as the shadow um, economy. The FT went on to say that this staggering loss of tax was enough to pay for the combined housing, environment and transport budgets for the UK or half of its education budget. Now clearly building, uh, paying a builder in cash or a workman in cash does not account for all this amount. But surely condoning this habit cannot be said to bring honour in our Lord. And if somebody's doing this work for us and they know that we're a Christian, and the likelihood is that they are not going to declare that cash, or all of it, on their income tax return, that workman knows that though we, ha we carry the name of Jesus Christ, we are not acting with integrity. And it brings dishonour on our Lord. Let's aim then in our work and in our daily lives to win the respect of outsiders and so point others not to ourselves, but to Jesus. Pleasing God, being holy, is not about following a set of rules and regulations. Please never think that. It's about a relationship. It's about doing God's will, which is perfect, because we love him and we want to respond to all he has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Any so-called rules and regulations, any laws he has set down, are not because he loves to do it, for the sake of it, but it's for our good. And as, I've, as you've seen all the way through so much of what we've been looking at this evening, to do it God's way is running absolutely counter to the world that you and I will be facing tomorrow morning as we go into work. And we need to be aware of that and we need to be ready for it. Because to live like that is to live 
a life of joy and fulfilment. Amen. Now would you please stand? <laughs>